The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. A reading of Moonlighting and Oral History by Scott Ryan led me to dig out the DVDs of this once incredibly popular but now seemingly long forgotten TV classic. I was rewarded with a show that was every bit as funny, fresh and innovative as it was when it first aired. Last time I covered the first two seasons of Moonlighting and delved into how the show became bolder as it went along. This continued into season three as Moonlighting started as it meant to go on by becoming even more self-aware than usual. The premiere, The Sun Also Rises, not only featured a risque title, but a cold open acknowledging Moonlighting's failure to win any of the 16 Emmys it was nominated for back in 1986, while simultaneously saying that they'd been away. But now, they were back. season brims with confidence from the get-go, with a story focusing on David's father's impending marriage, an event that also sees the return of Richie Addison, as played by Charles Rocket, albeit in little more than a cameo. Season 3 is moonlighting in its ascendancy. Sybil and Bruce never looked better than they did this year, and the writing staff were at the top of their game, producing scripts that were fresh and funny. Unusually, there is no case for this return episode. Prior to this, even episodes that didn't have a case per se had some kind of detective work going on. The dream sequence always rings twice was Maddie and David thinking about a cold case. And every daughter's father is a virgin had David investigate Maddie's father's infidelities. But by this point, the series was a global hit, with people tuning in to see Maddie and David. The cases didn't matter. Son is a character piece with David realising that his father's new bride-to-be is an old one-night stand of his. David builds this up in his head to be a massive deal, only to learn he's not that special. Still, the premiere was a solid episode, and the ratings were huge, not only in America, but around the world. The BBC in particular found they had an unexpected hit on their hands. The BBC's approach to moonlighting was interesting. Now, to give them all the credit in the world, they didn't edit the show, leaving in all the in-jokes, and by starting a year late, they didn't have the problems the US had with late episodes, although this would affect the show later on. 
They did, however, follow the traditional approach of UK broadcasters to foreign imports. They heard it quite randomly, at least at first. The Beeb heard Moonlighting as four series, not five seasons, the first of which ran for 19 weeks and included the six episodes that comprise season one and a seemingly randomly selected run of 13 episodes from season two. They closed out with the final episode of season two, Camille, largely because they had to. None of the gags about that being the season finale would have made any sense otherwise. After erring Twas the Episode Before Christmas as a standalone Christmas special on the 23rd of December 1986, Series 2 began a run of 18 episodes on the 26th of January 1987. The Beeb wisely kicked off with the Season 3 premiere before jumping backwards and erring the extant episodes of Season 2, followed by the rest of Season 3, mostly in order, but again skipping It's a Wonderful Job, so they could err it as another Christmas special on the 22nd of December 1987. This series of Moonlighting, the second, debuted to a Radio Times cover and a two-page feature about the show and its now massive stars. The behind-the-scenes stories were legendary and almost overshadowed the show. Moonlighting, it was said, was a series in chaos. Sybil and Bruce weren't speaking to each other. The budget was out of control. The producers frequently had to shut down production, costing thousands of dollars because the scripts just weren't ready. Surprisingly, all these rumours turned out to be true. That Glenn Gordon Caron, the creator of the show, and his writing and producing staff managed to turn out the series' best season amidst all this turmoil is nothing short of amazing. After the premiere, The Man Who Cried Wife is about crimes of passion, spontaneity and infidelity. It also features a prime example of the kind of scene Moonlighting did so well, opposing viewpoints. Maddie and David were polar opposites, attracted to each other despite the fact they showed nothing in common and had no similar frame of reference. Cried Wife explores this in more depth. No. No? No. Oh. Yes, I mean no. Putting my foot down, standing my ground, digging my heels. It's going to create a lot of wear and tear on the old pumps, isn't it? This time you're not talking me out of it. This time I mean what I say. Fine, just say what you mean. You are not helping that man. You are not Having anything to do with that man, that man is a murderer. Maybe. Murderer? Murderer, maybe. Fine. I don't care. We don't help murderers. We don't help murderers. Maybe. Will you relax? Relax? That man hit his wife. Hit his wife. Fine. Fine? No, I don't mean fine. fine. I mean fine. Yes. yes. Agreed. The man hit his wife. Aha! Uh, let me talk. <sighs> yes. He hit her. And that's a terrible thing, but he didn't mean to do it. He didn't and that makes it all right? No, I don't think that makes it all right. But even the law acknowledges there's such a thing as losing your temper, becoming irrational, committing an act of passion. Passion? You call hitting your wife, knocking her down the steps and burying her body in the backyard passion? I don't call it passion, no. But you think it's okay? No, I don't think it's okay. But it happens. People do things and say things that they would never do if they thought them through. They react emotionally, spontaneously. Ah, oh, yes, yeah, spontaneously. People acting spontaneously. A lot of that going around lately. Every time some damn fool marries someone he has no business marrying and hits someone he has no business hitting, all the boys get together and say, we're sorry, we didn't mean to do it, it was just spontaneous. Forget I said spontaneous. The issue here is, are we going to help this man? The man needs our help. The man needs help, period, David. And not the kind he could get from you and me. Will you get in the car, please, David? 
You go on ahead. I'm gonna hang around here for a while and work on the case some more. But there is no case. I think there is. I think not. Crad Wife also ends with another moonlighting experiment, albeit a low-key one, wherein the viewer gets to choose their own ending from a choice of three. Choose-your-own-adventure books were big at the time. Symphony Knocked Flat is flat. Flat out one of the best episodes of the series. Starting with a magnificent cold open where David summons the Temptations with a click of his fingers, the story sees David take Maddie on a fine date, i.e. a date of refinery, if in return she'll take him on a fun date. It's another example of Maddie wanting men to be more complex than they are, and David trying to prove that man can rise to the occasion when the situation calls for it, and Maddie's just being incredibly picky. Willis scrubs up well in a tux, and, dream sequence accepted, Shepard has never been more beautiful. But, as is probably expected, a trip to the ballet goes awry, culminating in a simply ridiculous finale that spoofs Rocky Four. Knocked Flat is moonlighting doing farce, and is moonlighting at its silliest, funniest, and most irreverent. Yours very deadly is a throwback to season two. It's basically the Pina Colada song, an almost straight murder noir, sprinkled with the usual moonlighting elements, a ridiculous chase scene, and some fourth wall breaking gags. The most notable element is the addition of Curtis Armstrong to the cast as Mr. Pesto's potential paramour, Herbert Viola. Okay, you want to get deep? Let's get deep. All Creatures Great and Not So Great delves into religion and death, providing some moments of serious discussion, although the regular moonlighting irreverence is present and correct. After having Maddie admit she was an atheist in a previous show, this potentially controversial episode raised nerdy a peep from the network or the audience, showing that we weren't big babies about everything in the 80s. There's also a great guest cast in this one, from the beautiful Jessica Harper, Twin Peaks' Richard Boehmer, and Chucky himself, Brad Dereef. It's highlighted by this conversation, a rare, moderately serious moment between Maddie and David. You know, probably closer to you than anybody else I know out here. My family's back east, most of my friends. Guess I'd have to count on you. To do what? See to it that I'm cremated. I mean, in case anything happened. David, don't be so morbid. I want to go out in a blaze of hydrocarbons instead of providing a cheap source of protein for the invertebrates of the world. I don't want to talk about this. Happens to us all sooner or later. David. I know, I know, it's a bummer. But you know what I do to keep from getting stressed out about the inevitable? What? Think about the life force. The thing that denies death its due. The procreative act. The beast with two backs. Only you could turn the subject of cremation. You know, come on. Strange, but sex and death are two sides of the same coin. Creatures was an offbeat show. Rather serious, but still tinged with humour. Proving again that Moonlighting could have been a decent and probably successful normal detective show. It was also the last regular episode for a good long time. Moonlighting's most experimental phase begins with Big Man on Mulberry Street. Now, a show built around a Billy Joel song isn't supposed to be good. 
let alone one of the most inventive episodes of the series. And yet here we are. It starts with the situation being as normal as possible for Moonlighting. Maddie is annoyed that David has botched a case due to his unprofessional behaviour. It's a funny scene with the usual sparkling Moonlighting dialogue, but one can't help but feel in this instance, Maddie is 100% correct. David's irresponsible attitude and cavalier approach to work loses them a big client. The first act twist comes when Maddie learns David was once married and his old brother-in-law has passed away. Cue another of Moonlighting's patented dream sequences, wherein Maddie imagines David's first meeting with his now ex-wife, a stunning seven-minute dance number choreographed to the aforementioned Billy Joel song and directed by Stanley Donan, a noted theatre choreographer and director of Singing in the Rain. For this sequence, Donan brought in Conan's Sandal Bergman as David's wife, with Bergman being a dancer of no small talent. This was no simple gimmick. The lyrics and dance moves tell the story and propel it forward. Bergman owns the scene, one of the most provocative and sexiest moments ever to be seen on television. I said what I said. Willis, not a professional dancer, gives it his all, and fair play to him, he holds his own. It's a stunning set piece, completely devoid of dialogue, a daring and bold move from a show known for its stunning dialogue exchanges. But that's not the end of the tale, merely the beginning. I have to confess, as a kid, I wasn't fond of Mulberry Street. Too much dancing and not enough humour. I look back now and see that's because I wasn't old enough to appreciate what a stunning piece of work this is. Mulberry Street is stunningly mature in adult television for the time. Not only a wonderful example of tolerance from a decade not known for its acceptance of the LGBTQ community, but as beautiful a put-together piece of artistic expression as has ever been seen on television. As a father of a daughter who dances, I can now appreciate the artistry of the dance sequences, the effort and skill of these performers who make this wonderfully complex sequence seem easy. But the monologues that follow are equally impressive. Willis and Shepard have never been and never would be better. Shepard's monologue was written by Karen Hall and Willis's by Glenn Gordon Karen, and both the writing and acting are sublime. Scott Ryan's book, Moonlighting and Oral History, devotes an entire chapter to Mulberry Street and its effect on the show, and how it was the episode that finally broke the relationship between Sybil Shepard and Glenn Gordon Karen. However, Moonlighting's creative peak wasn't fully mounted just yet. The next episode is another all-time classic, and probably the best-remembered show in the history of the series, Atomic Shakespeare. It's certainly the most ambitious. Whilst, according to Ryan's book, no one can seem to settle on an exact figure for the show's budget, with estimates varying from between $500,000 all the way up to $4 million. Whatever the final tally, it was, at the time, the single most expensive hour of television ever produced, costing the modern-day equivalent of an episode of Game of Thrones. The cost wasn't just the costumes and the wigs, but the extras, the musical arrangements, the sight gags, and the fact that the show was shot on none of the series' sound stages. Instead, production upping sticks to Universal, where their backlot doubled as Fur Padua. Writers Ron Osborne and Jeff Reno were working against the clock, with the script only two-thirds completed as filming began, and the pages for the last two acts being delivered to the crew on the day of filming. It's a minor filmmaking miracle that, from soup to nuts, the completed episode was delivered 
in 18 days, utilising numerous different film units to make the deadline. It's also one of the few episodes to not undergo rewrites, partially due to being behind schedule, but also due to the nature of the script, which was mostly written in iambic pentameter. Katsooks! Is there a fellow in all the land more hale and hearty than this? And now, on to matters of greater import, and to the reason for my visit to this fair city. To wit, a major plot point cometh. I come to wife it wealthily in Padua, and if wealthily, then happily, and if she hath no diseases, then healthily in Padua. Good sir, stay. Such unusual fortune that we meet here and now, and in such similar straits. A moment ago, what was it thou saying? And now, on to matters of... No, 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 after that. Didst I hear I come to wive it wealthily in Padua? Pray, sir, yea, sir, I dare say I did say. Yea, sir, you do say you did say? Yea, I say, but why do you bray? Do not gainsay what I say, that we may make headway. I foray this way, that I may be home ere midday. Hooray for this day, and the words that you say, and forgive my display, but I have something to say. Then without further delay, I say, fire away. If I were to tell thee that there lives in Padua such a woman as suits your needs, she be very wealthy and in dire need of a suitor, wouldst thou be interested? Wouldst? Does beareth beareth? Doth bees beeth? Saith what? Hell yes! Then off to a tavern. I've a story for thee. For a tankard of ale, I'll let you tell three. Left my wallet in my other pair of leaves. You think you can spot me five bucks Shepard and Willis pulled a Shakespearean dialogue off exceptionally well, given neither had experience of theatre before. Curtis Armstrong, by contrast, had extensive Shakespeare experience and seems the most comfortable of the regulars. The guest cast isn't large, but does include Ken McMillan and Star Trek's Cole Meany, both of whom were also stage actors of some renown. Showing how much moonlighting had moved with the times, the episode doesn't do Shakespeare's ending, rather updating the story to be more a contest of equals. Petruchio, as much as David, realises that Katerina, aka Maddie, is not an object to be vied for, a prize to be won, more someone who only desires equality and respect. Petruchio backs down in the end, having fallen for Katerina for who she is. As Petruchio says at the end, If this be offensive to men, then so be it. For perhaps the time has come for offence. The message is as timely as ever, proving to both millennials and the anti-SJW brigade that diversity goes back further than 2020. The rest of the show has many highlights. The usual smart dialogue, albeit with more rude double entendres than normal, but even though one or two lines fell foul of the censors, with some of Shakespeare's ass gags being perfectly acceptable in the 1600s, but a tad too risque for the 1980s. The centre point is Bruce Willis's performance of the young rascal's good loving, a performance made all the more impressive given Curtis Armstrong's recollection that Willis was suffering a 100 degree fever when it was filmed. Here it is from the Moonlighting soundtrack, which is currently unavailable on CD or on Spotify. Doctor, 
Shakespeare was peak moonlighting, and yet was not a high ratings earner, at least on its initial screening on ABC. Over the years, though, it's seen its reputation secured, being used considerably by teachers as an entry point into Shakespeare for high school kids. The second Christmas special, It's a Wonderful Job, nods to Dickens. An important client keeps the Blue Moon crew busy over the holiday period, leading to Maddie's employees revolting and Maddie wishing she'd never kept the detective agency open two years earlier. Cue a magical angel showing Maddie what would have happened had she sold up. I always think I missed the point of this episode. Surely the point of A Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life is to show that the protagonist needs to either change their ways or see how their lives have helped others. Here... Mr. Pesto is more successful without Maddie, albeit a little bit more rigid, and David was marrying Cheryl Teagues. Blue Moon is owned by Jonathan and Jennifer Hart. The only person who is worse off is Maddie. Of course, she chooses to leave history as it was. The Straight Poop is a clip show built around muckraker Rona Barrett, investigating why the producers can't make 22 episodes a year. This one baffled me as a kid. I had no idea who Rona Barrett was. Hell, I still don't, not really. The clips are at least well chosen, and there's just enough new material here, Rona asking about the off-screen difficulties, lateness, and Bruce Willis's rapidly receding hairline to keep it interesting. Also interesting, the clip from The Lady in the Iron Mask uses the William Tell Overture. Poltergeist 3, Depesto Nil, is the annual Depesto episode, and from there we would launch into the five episodes that would change the show forever. Glenn Gordon Karen was getting tired of people asking how long he could keep Maddie and David apart. He decided to bring them together at the end of this season, hopefully leading to new and different storylines going forward. Personally, I agree that this makes sense, at least in theory. Moonlighting was too clever a show to keep spinning its wheels, and it was too inventive to keep beating the same gags to death. Karen's notion was a smart one, and bang on time. Unfortunately, events would conspire against him, and forever altered the direction of the series. Blonde on Blonde sees Donna Dixon give Dana Delaney a run for her money as the sexiest Moonlighting guest star. Maybe it's all the double Ds. She's a murderess, out to kill her ex. But that's not the meat of the show. It's all about David finally confronting his feelings for Maddie, a realisation that comes far too late. See, Maddie's ex, Sam, played by Mark Harmon, has breezed into town, and he and Maddie have picked up where they left off. The next few episodes, Sam and Dave, Maddie's turn to cry, and I am curious, Maddie, are a mini-arc dealing with Sam, Maddie and David, a storyline that culminates in Maddie and David finally hitting the sheets together. 
Opinion on this still varies to this day, but the sexual tension thing can only go on for so long. Karen's reasons for doing this may have been honourable, but it was a production beset with problems. So, situation normal for Moonlighting. For one, Mark Harmon had a hard out, meaning he was only available until a certain date and then he had to leave. This was problematic. See, the arc concludes with a scene where Maddie, David and Sam all confront each other. However, it had to be filmed without all three actors ever being present at the same time. It also means Sam just disappears with no resolution for his character. The character arc also doesn't help in that Sam is dependable, reliable, stalwart and true and very, very boring. See, David's a lot of things, but he's not boring. Second, Sybil Shepherd's real-life pregnancy played havoc with the schedule when she learned she was expecting twins during the filming of this arc, and this severely curtailed when and how long she could work. Third, Bruce Willis broke his collarbone. For a show that was never behind the eight ball in terms of its schedule, any one of these events would be catastrophic. All three at once was a recipe for disaster. Nevertheless, the mini-arc was good, especially considering it was a gangbang script in which every major writer for the show contributed. Even the writers seemed to struggle to remember who did what, so they divvied up the writing script and teleplay credits evenly across the four shows, so they all made the same money in residuals. Part four of the story, I Am Curious Maddie, heard three weeks after part three, and features the moment when Maddie and David finally get it on. Never mind, I just forget about it. This was never meant to be. I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. Look who's talking about worth, Mr. Bargain Basement. If there was a closeout sale on human beings, you'd be the last one to sell. Yeah, you ought to know, honey. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means you're the kind of person that goes through life looking at the price tag instead of the merchandise. You want some guy who went to a great school, great mug, nice manners. Well, that's fine, just fine. Makes sense. Look at you. You're not a person, you're a poster. Well, you deserve another poster. You're going over the line, David. You spend more time dressing than you do smiling. You spend more time with business than you do with pleasure. And your way's better? More time singing than working? More time screwing up than moving up? Moving up? Is that what you believe in? Sparing. Is that what you believe in, huh? What do you believe in? A good party. I'll tell you what I don't believe in. I don't believe in wasting any more time. I'm sick of this. Two years of is you is or is you ain't. Two, Two years. years of bees being in duck stucking in a man who thinks the culture is dark beer. I'm. This is ridiculous. I'm miserable. So am I. Yeah, well... I may have just let the best thing that ever happened to me get away. And look at me, here I am, spending the evening having another pointless argument with you. Fine. Fine. Good. Good. Bitch. Bastard. Get out. Get out.
Gaslighting's use of music was often sublime and perfect, no more so than the inclusion of Be My Baby here at the end of this episode. The season concluded with To Ures Human, and Maddie deciding that this was all a mistake and she and David should carry on as if nothing ever happened. If only it were that easy. Because behind the scenes, it all went straight to hell. But that's for next time. Al Jurotha with Some Walk by Night, the theme to Moonlighting. Okay, let's have a look in the email bag and see what you're sending me. Nothing, nothing at all, apart from one email from Dave Gutierrez. Hello, David. Andy L. I like the use of the exclamation mark because it makes it look like Andy Lee, which, you know, quite cool. Do you recommend any post-Fleming Bond books? Any of the newspaper strip storylines? Love your show. Sorry I never get to write in with my brilliant thoughts. David. David M. Gutierrez. Well, it's funny you should say that, David, because I have right here, if you listen, those are the pages. Uh, I am halfway through Colonel Sun by Robert Markham, who we all know is actually Kingsley Amis. Uh, I bought this in really good condition. From a second-hand bookshop, I believe I posted it on the social media, and now it's ripped to shreds because my dog got hold of it. It's good, though. It's a, it's a very enjoyable novel. It's very much picking up where Fleming left off. In fact, that was the original impetus for the novel. A number of writers were going to all write Fleming-esque Bond novels under the name Robert Markham, and this was going to be the first one. Um, Kingsley Amis is not a fan of filmic Bond, much preferring literary Bond, and this makes references to the last couple of Fleming books, and is set in the late 1960s. So it definitely feels like part of the Fleming canon to me as I'm reading along with it. So I'd recommend Colonel Sun by Robert Markham. I haven't read many non-Fleming ones. I didn't read many John Gardner ones or Raymond Benson. I do have the two by Anthony Horvitz. Trigger Mortis is what it's called, and Forever in a Day, um, that I'm very interested in picking up, probably when I read when I finish reading Colonel Sun, because they are apparently set at the beginning and end and middle of Bond's career, so I'm looking forward to that. And it has just been announced that the first woman writer will be writing some Bond novels, which will be focusing on uh, Bond has gone missing, and new agents have stepped into the role, so it sounds very much influenced by No Time to Die. Uh, that sounds like a, it should be an intriguing idea. All the other characters will obviously be present and correct. So let's see. I wonder if this is a test to see if the audience will accept non-Bond Bond stories, to see if they could go forward in such a way. You know, have still have M, still have Q, still have Moneypenny, but have another 007. I don't know be interested uh i've also managed to latch on to I, I read the warren ellis comics they were quite enjoyable 
Um, I have only just recently discovered that Greg Pak is currently writing Dynamite's James Bond comic series. I very much enjoyed what uh, Greg Pak did with The Incredible Hulk, particularly with Planet Hulk and World War Hulk. So I'm going to keep my eye open and see if I can pick those up in trade paperback or on Comixology or whatever. Christmas is coming up. If you people want to buy me something, feel free. You don't get if you don't ask. Is the more I give you all this free entertainment, you can buy me some James Bond trade paperbacks. I also have the John Grell, Mike Grell, sorry, the Mike Grell miniseries from back in the 80s, which is apparently quite hard to get hold of nowadays, um, but I've not read that. Oh, I don't know if I've ever read it. I think for ages I only had issue one, and I was informed on social media I found issues two and three in a cheat box. I paid 50p for them, and I posted them like I do normally. I've been the comic mart, and this is what I got, because you sure you swag with your friends, and they go, oh, that's cool. Oh, I wouldn't mind having that, that kind of thing. And um, somebody told me that one of those issues is incredibly rare because it had a very, very low print run. So to find it at all was remarkable. To find it in the 50p bins was was staggering. So uh, I am going to read those because I have thought about possibly doing a show on them because I do like Mike Grell's Green Arrow run and, and some of his other stuff as well. Warlord and... Uh, he has a secret agent guy whose name is temporarily escaping me who's quite good as well. Anyway, so they're the only ones I can really comment on because they're the only ones I remember. Uh, I have a soft spot for Fleming. There is a series of James Bond radio plays um, based upon Fleming's novels, normally around between 90 and 100 minutes, featuring the guy who played Gustav Graves in Die Another Day as James Bond. Uh, of course, actor Toby Stevens, and those radio plays are, are well done. You can probably find them all on archive.org if you do some searching. But those those radio plays also have some interesting casting, in that Joanna Lumley is in the Honor Majesty's Secret Service radio play. I think she plays Diana Riggs' character, I can't remember now. But obviously Joanna Lumley was in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And I think, I've not listened to Goldfinger, but I think... They've got Rosamund Pike, who was also in Die Another Day, to play Pussy Galore. So there's some interesting casting going on in those radio plays. They're well worth tracking down, if uh, if you can. Well worth having a look for. Anyway, that's it for email. That's it for what has become a three-part retrospective on Moonlighting. Because, you know, the show is, is, is deep. There's a lot in there to explore. So I'll see you all next time with part three, covering the show's final two seasons... And then after that, who knows where we'll go. Could go anywhere, couldn't we? Maybe I'll do those James Bond comics, you can say. Maybe, now that Die Another Day is out on, on demand and on Blu-ray and DVD, I'll watch it again and see if I uh, I change my mind about that ending. Because I do love the rest of it. I thought the rest of it was up there with Skyfall. So, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right, guys and gals and anybody, really. Uh, take care. I'll see you all next time. You can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com for the time being. And let me know what you think of this run. Because it's always amazing to me that the shows I put my heart and soul into are the ones that nobody comments on. I don't know what that says. All right, see you all later. Take care. Everything's going to be fine. Goodbye. Goodbye.